Hey everybody, welcome to Evil Pudding, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Courtney. And I'm Patrick. The man with the plan. The man with the plan. How's everyone doing today? I have no plan. I'm just throwing it out there. <laughs> You're just winging it as per usual? As per usual. <laughs> flying by the seat of my pants here. So it's raining. So if you hear some thunder boomers or something like that, lightning crashing, then that's what it is. It's. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it is. Words of wisdom by Courtney. Oh, boy. You're going to write a book one day. I am. I'm going to write a book. <laughs> I don't know if I want to read it. I'll be honest with you. I'm just joking. I'd read it. I don't think we have any uh, updates or any business I mean, to take care of. One thing we? we did this week, I don't know if everyone's. Um, oh my gosh, how could I forget? Yeah, so a good friend of ours, a good friend of the show, a good friend of mine, longtime friend of mine from the military, uh, Jen Raider, uh, had hey, us Jen. on HNC Buddies, which is her live stream. Talk show basically on YouTube, and, and she's, it's a stream she does. She also she's also on Twitch and all these other platforms. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were on there. And we talked to her. We talked. Well, we talked serial killers. You know, most fascinating ones. You know, doing the podcast background story. Uh, I believe we have it linked up on Instagram. I know it's linked on our Twitch. Uh, if not, we'll make sure it's Twitter. linked up. Twitter. We don't have Twitch. Twitch. Twitter. Yeah. Twitter. Holy shit! This is gonna be rough. <laughs> So we have it linked up on our Twitter. I think we have it on our Instagram. If not, we'll get it up on Instagram and I Facebook. I put it on Instagram stories. I need to share it to um, like our posts. Okay. Yeah. So we'll get it up on there. That. Check it out if you haven't had a chance to. Also, go check out Jen. She's an awesome person. Uh, she's yeah. starting a new season of her show. Her kind Instagram of rebranded. is not Jen Raider. At not Jen Raider. Jen A Raider. Mm-hmm. Jen A Raider. Not Jen A Raider. She has this. She had her her podcast and her, 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 her stream and she kind of changed the format now she's just having fun with it yeah doing she's what's awesome. fun for her not being awesome stressful chick. about it she's uh she's good people check her out have fun with it yeah i think that's the only news um is it i think so i do have a podcast to recommend yes i love when you recommend them okay so every week we like to share with you a great podcast that we have personally been listening to so that you can also enjoy it and that podcast today is called Dark Tales from the Road with host Kayla Barber. And Kayla posts a weekly episode about true crime cases, spooky places, and everything in between. And my favorite ep- episode of hers so far is, and Patrick hasn't listened to this episode yet, it's uh, the Dybbuk Box episode. Hmm? Yeah, you've got to listen to it. Okay. I thought of you immediately. Yep, something to listen to on the way to work tomorrow. So um, I love me some spooky Dybbuk boxes. That's I just like spooky shit. So Yeah, me too. So I'm all about it. Anyways, so here's a quick clip from Kayla to wet your whistle. Hey, listeners. My name is Kayla, and I'm the creator and host of a new podcast called Dark Tales from the Road. We cover true crime, spooky, creepy, and ghostly stories, and I want to take you state by state and country by country to bring you stories you may not have even heard of before, and also learn some history on the city and the state where it takes place. So join me on the road as we discover dark tales. New episodes are posted every Wednesday. I have an Instagram, Facebook, and a Patreon, all at Dark Tales from the Road. Thank you so much, and I hope everyone has a great day. Okay, everybody, are you ready to be really sad and angry and um, 
all the above. Way to grab my enthusiasm. <laughs> let's just go be sad and angry. Let's let's do that. This case today is, this took me a while. When we first, I'll tell you about this. When we first started this podcast, Pat, I toyed with this being one of the first cases I covered, but I put it off because this is one of those cases that just like stuck with me. And okay. um, I think you're going to enjoy it. It's not a lovely, happy case. It's very sad. There's a child involved. So, um, but this is, it's going to stick with all of you as well. Today, we're going to be talking about the 1989 horrific murder of 13-year-old Kelly Ann Tinius, a bright, bubbly, smart, and beautiful child with her whole life ahead of her. And when I say horrific, this is one of those unnecessarily cruel and difficult homicides to look into. No murder is good, of course, but this one is going to hit us all hard today, right in the feelers. Kellyanne was brutally taken from this world just two days shy of her 14th birthday. Two days. That's crazy. Her murder, in turn, would incite an incredible smear campaign of the Golub family in their quiet, middle-class suburban neighborhood in Long Island, New York. And her case would become the first homicide to use newly available scientific technology to solve. Sweet. I first heard about her story a few years ago, and it's one of those crimes that just sticks with you, like I said. And you're never quite able to get it out of your mind, not only because she's a literal child, but I think it's a stark reminder of how evil people can truly be and how unassuming like the worst ones are. And that's something we always talk about, right? Some of the worst ones are just like Steve from down the street that was like everyone thought was like the little league coach and the, you know, owned his bakery. Right. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, yeah. Absolutely. And this episode will absolutely not be for the week of heart. So please be warned in advance. I hate doing episodes about children, but it's important that her story is told and that we can learn something from history, I think. Yeah, of course. So it doesn't repeat itself. Okay, so before I talk myself out of this... (laughs) Let's dive headfirst into the horrifying true story of the life and senseless murder of young Kelly Ann Tenius. So Kelly Ann Tenius was born on March 5th, 1975, to Mother Victoria and Father Richard. Five years later, Victoria and Richard would have a son they named Richard Jr., but they called Richie for short. The Tenius family lived in an area of Long Island, New York, called Valley Stream, Now, Valley Stream was a type of sleepy, middle-class town where murder was just unheard of. And I know we hear that a lot in true crime episodes. In fact, according to Niche.com, Valley Stream was voted one of the best and safest places to live in New York. The article I read said, and I quote, Living in Valley Stream offers residents a dense suburban feel, and most residents own their own homes and have families. I guess, unfortunately, senseless murder can just strike anywhere. Yeah, I, I always that. feel like every murder like this, it's, it starts out with, you would never, you would never suspect never it in this town. And th- this magazine is quoted, or this website is quoted as referencing it as the safest and most crime-free area, best place for a family. Like literally Earth. every single episode. It's so true. On IDTV, all these shows that everyone yes. starts like that. Which I get it, because a lot of these hor- horrific crimes happen in places that, Shit just, like, doesn't happen like And that's the worst, right? When you don't expect it to happen and it happens, it's when it shakes the community. It's like, whoa. Yeah, because there's nothing been like that. We've covered a couple episodes where 
there was nothing. And then all of a sudden it was just like, everybody was like, what the fuck is going on here? Exactly. Exactly. So the Tenya's family lived on Horton Road and all of the 19 homes on this street were nice and very well-maintained. Most of the families here on Horton Road all had children who attended nearby Woodmere Middle School where Kellyanne attended or Hewlett High School. So everyone knew everyone. Small town. Makes sense. Their neighborhood was a close-knit one. Every Halloween, Labor Day, and 4th of July, you could expect to see a block party being held with all neighbors and their children in attendance. The parents found that this way, they never had to worry about their children wandering off into unknown neighborhoods, and they could keep an eye on everyone that way. I mean, you only got 19 families. Yeah. So it's not like, it's big enough where you can have a block party, but it's not huge where like your kids are just wandering around the city. Right. Now, the home that the Tenyus family lived in actually belonged to Richard Sr.'s parents, who were both now very ill and still resided there. So there were quite a few people living under one roof, but Kellyanne loved to help take care of her elderly grandparents. They seemed all to be very close. I mean, there's only six of them living there. Yeah. Which, that's our house. That's our house. (laughs) It's not that bad. I mean, it's a little hectic, but yeah. A little hectic. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's because you got four... Fucking teenagers running around. Oh, God, around. help us. I know. But love every minute of it. No, you don't. Yes, I do. <laughs> you know what? I was talking to, I was talking to some of our podcast friends today, and I think I'm going to miss it. Well, I know I'm going to miss it when it's gone. Oh, so yeah, I try absolutely. to stop in the moments I get stressed out and just stop and be like, you know what, Courtney? You're going to miss this. Which is hard to do. You have, it's I mean, hard you have to, to admit do. it when it's there's chaos do. running around and. You know, teenagers are like, oh, I forgot to bathe today or I didn't do anything and my room's a mess and there's food everywhere or I ate everything. It's like, dude, I just ate two hundred dollars worth of food. What the hell? We just went shopping today and the food's gone. Like, yeah, you're it's hard to like this. You're going to miss. This. It's hard to say you're going to miss it in the moment. But yeah, you know, we but will. you're going to miss this. So um, I'm just going to go to their fucking houses and eat all their shit. Oh, yeah. That's the first thing I'm going to do. <laughs> they move out. So Richard Sr., the dad, Kelly's dad owned a nearby auto repair shop called Victoria's Auto Repair, named after his wife, Victoria, which I thought was cute. He restored old cars to help support the family while wife Victoria worked at a nearby doctor's office. Because of Kelly's grandparents' declining health, Kelly didn't often have friends over to visit often, but she never complained. When she wasn't babysitting her brother while her parents were at work or caring for her grandparents, you could find Kelly hanging out with one or all four of her closest girlfriends. Those close friends gave Kelly the nickname Sky, and I'm guessing and can only speculate that name was inspired by Kelly's gorgeous bright blue eyes. She was seriously such a beautiful girl. I'll make sure to post pictures of her on our IG, of course. All of her friends described Kelly as a sweet girl with an infectious smile. She was responsible and level-headed for her age and quite athletic. She loved to ski and ice skate with her friends. She, was, she just seemed to be a well-rounded 13-year-old girl. Now let me introduce you to the Golub family, because this family plays a big part in Kelly's Golub story. or Golum? Golub. Oh, okay. G-O-L-U-B. Okay, I'm like, the Golum family? What the hell? B as in boy. Got you. I'm tracking. Picking yep. up what you're putting down. Good. The Golub family lived five houses down from the Tenyus family on Horton Road. And didn't really socialize with the other families in the neighborhood. Mm, those people. <laughs> the father, John Golub, was a very glum, grumpier, older man, but a hard worker. 
He operated Getty Service Station in Hewlett, also an auto repair shop. He kind of stayed away from everyone and spent a lot of his free time working on his boat or restoring his old Rolls Royce. Fancy. His wife, Elizabeth Golub, she was kind of a Karen, but still a little more, (laughs) still a little more social than the rest of her family. And that's the best way I can really describe her. She had been super active in the petition to make Horton Road a one-way street. So in doing this, Elizabeth had made a few friends in the neighborhood, nothing really big or serious. So she had a few friends who shared at least the same sentiments about Horton Road being a one-way street as her, and that's about all I can say for her. She worked at a local transportation company office, and she routinely shopped at garage and tag sales. And I say this because we're going to see that the family were big-time hoarders, although you wouldn't know it by the well-maintained outside of their home. And we will get more into this later on, but I wanted to kind of set the stage for just how odd they were. They didn't seem to be bad per se, just kind of the gregarious neighbors that were just weird. Yeah, you can can never really tell hoarders for the most part yeah you always get those ones in those neighborhoods that have like their yard is a hoard yard right but a lot of times the outside looks normal and then you go inside and you're like what the fuck? yeah and that's how it was i mean the outside was immaculate so the gollops had three children their oldest daughter adele uh who lived away from home in manhattan she worked at an accounting firm so she's no longer at home then there was their next oldest son 21 year old robert who still lived at home then their youngest son was 14-year-old John Jay, who was a freshman at local Hewlett High School. So now that I have introduced you to the main players of this horrific story, let's talk about the day that the world would forever change on Horton Road. And it gets a little confusing, but I'm, I'm going to try to make it as simple as possible and just go through the timeline. So it's March 3rd, 1989. It's a Friday. And Kelly's birthday was that following Sunday on the 5th. And this Friday evening, Kelly had big plans to go to dinner with her group of friends to celebrate her birthday two days early. After school that day, Richard Tenius had driven his daughter, Kelly, home. She asked her dad on the way home if maybe she could go ice skating at nearby Grand Park with her friend. But her dad said no because she needed to babysit her eight-year-old little brother, Richie, until her mother got home from work. Richard Sr. also had to return to work for a few more hours at his auto shop. She begrudgingly agreed. She had, <laughs> yeah, she, typical 13-year-old. Yeah, whatever, fine. <laughs> I don't have a choice, but I don't like it. Well, she had plans to go to her birthday dinner later that evening with her best friend, so maybe she could suffer a few more hours and babysit her brother before her weekend yeah, birthday you know, kickoff. We know that all too well with our own 13-year-old, like, <laughs> No, you can't do this. You have to do this. Like, ugh. like okay. Well, calm it's down. funny you should say that. So after Kelly arrived home to watch her little brother and her dad went back to work, she called her father at work to ask just one more time if she could go ice skating. Are you sure? <laughs> Are you sure? You sure, sure. Which is so funny because I can see our thirteen-year-old doing that she for does sure. That. Um, dad once again said no, but as soon as her mother or him arrived home from work, she'd be able to go. Cool. Yeah, out the door. So just after that phone conversation ended, the Tenius's house phone rang and Kelly's little brother, Richie, answered. The caller told Richie that his name was John and he asked to speak to Kelly. That's very important. Okay. Kelly took the call and briefly talked to whoever John was on the other end of the line. 
Then about 20 minutes later, at about 3.10 p.m., Kelly told her little brother that she was just going to her friend Nicole's house down the street, but she would be right back and she wouldn't be long. I will just be a few minutes. Of course, every time. Richie waited impatiently for about five minutes after his sister left. Not long at all. He took it very literally. Like, she's going to be just a few minutes. Which is what eight-year-olds do. Exactly. He wasn't loving the fact that she left him. He wasn't used to being alone. And it wasn't like her to do so. So he decided he was just going to go and find her himself. He walked down the sidewalk to her friend Nicole's house. But Nicole told him that Kelly had never come by. Strange. Mm -hmm. In front of a nearby neighbor's house, a six-year-old Harry Stonel was playing in his front lawn and overheard that Richie was looking for his sister. He told Richie that he saw Kelly go inside John J. Golub's house. Remember the Golub family? John. John J. is their 14-year-old. Well, yeah. yeah, and the, no, the caller was John. So Richie and Harry went to the Golub's house next door and rang the doorbell repeatedly, but no one answered. Both boys could hear rock music blasting loudly from the Golub house. They repeatedly yelled Kelly's name, but just no answer ever came. About 3.45, Richie returned home and called both his mom and his dad, who both worked very close by, and told them that Kelly had left him alone and had not yet returned. Victoria said she'd be home within the hour. You know mom and dad about to come home wanting to whoop her ass. Yeah, they weren't worried because this is a very close-knit neighborhood. She knew everybody. And I know, they're just pissed yeah. off that she left her brother She's home. Mad, so they're like, they're, they're driving home like, I'm going to beat this girl's ass. Like, mm-mm, no more phone for you, girl. Now, although uh, aggravated that Kelly would leave her little brother home alone, they were not yet worried. Kelly was familiar with the neighborhood and knew nearly everyone there. When Richie mentioned to his father that Kelly had been seen walking into the Golub's house, his father said, Okay, go find your sister, Richie. Go to the Golub house, beat on the door, and call out for your sister until I can get there. Richard Sr. knew that their family and the Golub family barely knew each other, and Kelly and John Jay weren't exactly friends, just acquaintances. So there was absolutely no good reason for her to be over there. Richie's a smart little boy. Instead of just going back over there, he found the Golub's number in the phone book, and he called their house several times with no answer. He was probably scared, too. Like he was, eight he year was old a little scared. He used to run around knocking on people's doors. Exactly. So he went back over to the Golub house, stood outside, and just started yelling for his sister again, even screaming that their dog Brutus was loose and she needed to hurry and come outside to help him find them, thinking that would lure her out. Mm-hmm. This poor kid's just trying everything he can to get his sister out, just in case she's hiding there in her own free will, you know? Right. With no luck, Richie came back home, still waiting on his parents. When he walked through his front door, the Tinya's phone was ringing. He answered, thinking it was his sister, but it was her best friend, Kelly's best friend, R- Roberta Gross, asking to speak to Kelly. They had dinner and birthday plans to be making after all, so they needed to chat. Yeah. Roberta was puzzled when Richie told her what was going on. She knew Kelly would have never left her little brother for that long. Finally, about 5 p.m., Victoria and uh, Richard Sr. arrived home, and they decided it was best to call all of Kelly's friends to see if she had decided to sneak off with anyone to go ice skating, as she had so desperately wanted to do. But that just didn't seem to be the case. Victoria and Richard Sr. went from angry at Kelly Mm -hmm. to worried. Oh, shit. And decided to go and knock on the neighbor's doors. 
but no one knew where their daughter was. They finally knocked on the door of Sharon Stonell, and she said that she had, and that was um, one of Kelly's really good friends, and she said that she had also seen Kelly walk into the Gollop house. And to Victoria, this reinforced Richie's story. It was just so odd that Kelly would have gone to visit John Jay when she barely knew him. Right. Victoria and Richard Sr. tried to knock on the Golub's house with no answer. They called a total of five times over the next hour. And finally, on their sixth try, Elizabeth Golub, the matriarch of the family, picked up. Richard frantically relayed the whole story to Mrs. Golub and asked if she had seen Kelly at all that day, to which she replied she had absolutely not. Then Richard Sr. asked to speak to 14-year-old John Jay, the only person that Kelly could have possibly had anything to do with in that family. Well, Mrs. Gala put her son on the phone, and when Richard asked him, have you seen Kelly today, John was like, no, I have not. In fact, I haven't seen her in the last several days. Later on, Richard would note that John Jay seemed noticeably nervous which, take it however you want. He's 14, and there's a grown man freaking out on the phone about his missing daughter to him, you know? Or maybe he knows more than he's letting on. You know, we can't speculate too much at this time. Anyways, Richard asked John Jay if he was absolutely certain he had not seen Kelly, and John Jay just said, yeah. So Richard and Victoria Tenius continued making calls and knocking on anyone's door they could possibly think of. They made their way around to Roberta Gross's home, Kelly's best friend, and Roberta was noticeably just a wreck and consumed by worry that her absolute best friend was missing. I mean, they had a big birthday weekend planned. Richard begged Roberta to please tell him anything she could possibly know about Kelly's whereabouts, but she just knew absolutely nothing. So the Tenyas family returned back to their neighborhood on Horton Road, where they questioned even more neighbors. And it turns out that multiple more neighborhood children were coming forward claiming to have seen Kellyanne enter into the Gollop house. So at midnight, an unidentified caller claiming to be assisting the Tenyas family um, find Kellyanne called and woke up Elizabeth Gollop. The caller insisted that Elizabeth go and wake up her son, John Jay, because they just needed to get to the bottom of this once and for all. Elizabeth seemed eager to help and very confused as to why everyone is thinking that Kellyanne was in her home. I mean, she lived there and she does not see her there. You know? Yeah, she's like, why is everybody fucking saying this shit? Yeah. I'd have kicked her fucking door in, but that's me. <laughs> so she did, in fact, while on the phone, go and wake up her 14-year-old son and once again asked him if he had seen Kellyanne at all that day, to which he responded again, 100% he had not. Finally, at 1.40 a.m., Richard Tenius, out, out of any ideas as to where his daughter could possibly be, called the police, and this is about to piss you off because this is something that absolutely no parent should ever have to hear. She hasn't been gone for 24 hours. Well, he was told that he would have to wait until morning because the police depart- before the police department could get involved. Mm-hmm. This infuriates me, but back in the late 80s, this was common policy for many police departments to have. It's not a law. It's just policy. They just thought she would show up by morning. And sadly, the first 24 hours that someone is missing is the most crucial, and this is effectively time wasted. It is, and but you know, to that point, like you said, back then especially, it's still like that in some places now, 
you got to wait 24 hours for them to be missing because it's just so many times people would call in for. The, well, they, you don't have to anymore. It's not a law. No, it's never a law, but it's yeah. policies, right? Ugh. In certain places, it still is. I would. I would. Because. Freak out. Of the amount. You know, it was put into place in a lot of places because of the amount of people that would. You know, their kid wasn't home within an hour of when they were supposed to be. They're calling and missing persons when the kid would show up three hours later. Right. They decided to go fuck around at the pond or something. Right. So they put that policy into place. And then, uh, obviously, like you said, 24 hours is, if something is wrong, how far can you get in a car in 24 hours, just say? I mean, we live in we live in Texas. In 24 hours of straight driving, you can be in Canada. You know what but I mean? A 13-year-old girl, and she's already been missing since three. No, I'm saying one. if someone took her yeah, no, I know. into a car, 24 hours, she's in, they're in Canada. They're in oh, know, yeah, South yeah. Mexico. I see what you're they're, they're wherever. Oh, I got gotcha. you. Because literally even be have, back then, probably have kind of hopped on a plane internationally. At I that know. Point. You know what I mean? It's just it's time wasted. It's it is. It is. So, I mean, the policy was there for a reason, but it was wrong. At the time. Agreed. Agreed. So it was day two, and you know the Tenya's family got zero sleep. I can't imagine being a parent and being in their position. I'd be so terrified to ever just close my eyes, you know? I'd just be laying by the phone. I never would have been home. Or never come home. You would have been two. home. I'd have been out with a shotgun or a pistol just driving around everywhere I could think of. <laughs> so Richard and Victoria woke up early that Saturday morning and went and retraced all of the previous day's steps. Their first stop was the Golub's house again. I think they really just had a gut instinct that that house and at least one person in it held the key to their, their daughter's disappearance. Fuck, like five people in the neighborhood were like, yeah, Absolutely. she went in that house. So Richard Tenyus and his sister-in-law named Linda went and knocked on the Golub's door and told Elizabeth Golub that Kelly had not come home overnight and they just were desperate to locate her. Like, look, I know I'm over here a lot. I'm sorry to keep bothering but look, you. Look, everyone's but saying she came yeah. here last. Elizabeth was trying to be helpful. She said, I can't believe this is happening to you guys. And she invited them inside. Now, the Tenuses came inside and they couldn't help but notice the unbelievable mess inside the Golub home. They had never been inside before. Apparently, Mrs. Golub was quite the hoarder and you couldn't. You couldn't even see the floor because it was so covered with crap. There was no place to sit. Kelly's um, dad and aunt, she would be, they waited in the foyer while Elizabeth went upstairs to bring her 14-year-old son down to see if he could tell him anything new. But once again, John Jay said he just knew nothing. So finally, when enough time had passed, the Tinius family called the police once again to get the ball rolling with them after wasting all that precious time. Yep. <laughs> a missing persons report was filed, and Detective Thomas McVetty of the Juvenile Aid Bureau, along with Detective Brennan, who I think it's pretty cool, she was a former nun. That's a career change for you. <laughs> uh, okay. They met with Victoria and Richard Tenius first, and they filed the detect. Uh, she they filled in the detectives um, when Kelly had last been seen and where she had last been seen entering into the Golub home the previous afternoon. This was confirmed to detectives later by Kelly's friend Sharon and six-year-old Harry, who witnessed Kelly entering the Golub house that afternoon. Then they went and spoke to Kelly's friends, who answered all the basic questions. They all confirmed that Kelly did not have any issues with drugs or alcohol, did not have a history of running away. They there were no... Yep, they hadn't heard from her. There were no significant problems at home. She had no boyfriend and never had. She didn't have a crush on anybody. 
all the things that detectives yeah, would nowhere, initially look there's for. There's nowhere for her to sneak off to. There's no places that she would go hide or go try to go do something. Right. Kelly's friends reiterated that she would never miss her birthday weekend with them. And they also ensured that Kelly did not know John J. Golub at all and would have no reason to go to the Golub house to see him. Now, I have to give you this info just so you have all of the information. There were some acquaintances of Kelly later in the investigation, not right now, but later once they got to talking to everybody, okay. that said, oh, Kelly had a crush on John Jay, but her best friends absolutely 110%, they're like, uh, no. That's as much as they want to just talk shit. I, I think that's more like it, but I just wanted you to have that information. It's my opinion that it's BS. It sounds like BS because if anyone's going to say that she has a crush on them, it's going to be one of her best friends or her close inner circle. Right. They're going to know that shit. Even if she's ashamed of it, like, you know this as you grew up as obviously as a, as a girl and even as boys. Like, if you had a crush on somebody. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> just leave it at that. Uh, <laughs> even if you had a crush on someone as a boy, even with us, like, even if it was someone you shouldn't. Like you would joke about friends. it, but you would joke about it with yeah, your best friends exactly. and they would make fun of you and you'd play around with it. Yeah, like. they, Kelly didn't even mention this dude. Just really weird. So this was never confirmed, nor can her close-knit group of friends corroborate that, which you'd think they'd be able to. You know, I mean, we're girls. We talk. <laughs> no, but it makes sense because this is a small town, right? This is some shit that never happens. Everybody, <laughs> you'll know that you're the true crime junkie here. True crime junkie here. You'll know everybody wants to fucking get involved and have oh, a fucking comment. And you'll see that later. Famous for shit. And I told them this, like, and it's all bullshit. If the internet was available back then to the degree it is now, um, it would be a viral case. We'd say that. There'd be fucking TikToks and Snapchats all over the world about it. Anyways, so naturally, the next stop for detectives was the Golub House. Elizabeth and her 14 year old son, John Jay, greeted the officers, and Elizabeth agreed that the officers come inside for an interview. Since the house was so unbelievably cluttered, get this, guys, there was no place for the detectives to even sit, so they had to all stand. And you know they're making notes of that shit. Oh, I'm sure. McVetty asked John Jay if he by chance knew Kellyanne at all, and if he had in fact seen Kellyanne at all the previous day. And John Jay was like, yeah, I know her, but I didn't see her at all yesterday. McVetty asked if there was anyone else in the house who may know something about Kelly's whereabouts. And John Jay said, well, I mean, only my brother's in the house. So McVetty and Brennan, of course, asked if they could speak to Mrs. Golub's oldest son. So she called him down. This part's a little weird to me. A few minutes later, Robert Golub came downstairs accompanied by his friend, Paul Zarella, and the pair just stood next to the detective silently. Like, Paul, why are you here? <laughs> Go away. Who the fuck are you, guy? <laughs> Officers noticed the contrast between the two brothers. John Jay was handsome. He was young. He was a young teenager, but he was clean cut and average build and height. But his brother, Robert, was barely more than five feet tall. And he was like freaking jacked, like a cloud. Like we always joke about the cloud boys. He had LMS. Yeah. <laughs> he had little man syndrome. He did. He did. Probably walking with invisible lats and shit, like arms way out to the side, bumping into shit. Like, uh, of course, I will post a picture just so we can all. Digging their yeah. monsters, you can literally pick them up and throw them. He was a big guy, but he was short. He was super into powerlifting and bodybuilding, from what they could tell. 
and probably all the stuff that came along with it. Do you are you <sighs> insinuating steroids? I am insinuating very much. Okay. Not just insinuating. You fucking say it. We'll save you. that. Yeah, I'm saying it without saying it. No, you fucking said it. So <laughs> I'm I'm not a mean person, but it's okay to talk shit about Robert. Okay, it's okay to talk shit about these people. Yeah, I had a feeling it was him from the beginning. McVetty spent about five minutes asking Robert if he knew Kelly and if he had by chance seen Kelly the previous day. And Robert said that he had seen Kelly only around the neighborhood, but didn't know her at all. He also had not seen her for several weeks, so he had no idea where she could possibly be. Robert said that the Friday she disappeared, he had been home all day from 7 in the morning until 9 p.m. that night. He also denied ever having made any telephone call to Kelly that Friday afternoon. Remember, Kelly's little brother said that before she left. John called. I received a phone call. Which is why they're up up in arms right now, because John lives there. John called, and everyone saw him go in. Then his buddy, Paul Zarella, who, like, why are you there, Paul? Uh, He interjected and said that the two of them had been together the previous night, to which Robert shook his head and argued. Yeah, but that was later on. So Robert also went on to explain that John Jay had had two friends over to their house after school, and three boys had played Nintendo. So John Jay and his two friends. What fucking friends going to his house to play Nintendo? Are they going to fucking sit on all the clutter? <laughs> I know. Two about inches from too. the TV? But you're a teenage boy. You don't care about that. The fuck I wouldn't? I'd be like, no, bro, welcome to my house. Like, bring the Nintendo to my house, my dude. We've got a couch with no shit on the floor. Like, come on. Bring the Nintendo. I'll carry the motherfucker. This is interesting. We used to do that shit. It was noted by Detective McVetty that every time Robert, the older brother, answered a question of theirs, he would look to his little brother, John Jay, almost for, like, confirmation. Fucking get my back, bitch. Yeah. I mean, that's how I took it. When asked why he kept doing that, Robert was like, I don't know. I just want to make sure I answer you guys' question right, you know? And then my brother doesn't snitch on me. (laughs) Detective McVetty left the Gollop house, probably not feeling any better. And was able to access phone records, which did prove that that was a new technology back, back then, by the way. Not the technology I'm featuring. No, but that was new in the 80s. But it was very tra- new. trace phone records. Yeah. So, um, that was, quickly. Exactly. And it did prove that the telephone call made to the Tinius home before Kelly left her house did in fact come from inside the Gallup residence. Man, I'm just taking everybody to jail right now. Right now. Everybody, get in the car. Detaining them for questioning. Not to, not to jail and charging, but I am detaining all for questioning. You have reasonable suspicion here. So here they have the proof that someone claiming to be John called Kelly from the Golub residence. Then Kelly left her home, walked to the Golub house, and was let inside by someone, although it was not seen who let her in. I forgot to add that part, no, but I mean, no one knew to be looking. No, they probably just saw the door open and she right. went in. Detective McVetty told his superior that day, quote, I believe the Golub family is where this investigation is. Crazy. Well, I mean, we all do just from your, the, the story you're telling, right? Mm-hmm. The phone call is proven to come from there. Half the fucking neighborhood saw them go in there, or saw her go in there. And then you got this dude coming down with his, he's his best friend probably, but still just talking trash. Yeah. Like, not talking trash, but just kind of making shit up and looking at his brother. And they, they to the point where they were like, why do you look at your little brother every time you tell us something? Like, yeah. That, that's why I said reasonable suspicion. Not reasonable doubt to convict him, but you have reasonable suspicion to think there's some shit going on here. Yeah, absolutely. 
Plus they have, um, did you already say that, that they had the um, witness accounts? Yeah, so you got yeah. like half the neighborhood saying that they saw, or a couple people in the neighborhood, which was like half the neighborhood, saying they saw her go in there and they opened the door and let her in, which means she was invited in some sort of they were expecting her, right? Yeah. Because if you don't know somebody and they just show up at your house, you're not like, hey, come on in. Yeah, absolutely. Even if I know who the neighbors are down the street, like I'm not like, hey, just come on in. I'm like, what's up? What do you need? Why are you here? Yeah, what's up? What do you want? Unless I'm expecting them to come to my Unless house. Unless I invited you. Exactly. I need to talk to you or something. And it's especially the family that no one really hangs out with, right? Everyone in the family at this point is probably, or in the neighborhood has probably told them, like, no one associates with his family, really. Like, Yeah, they're weird. We know them, but no one hangs out with them. What's their name down there? Probably don't even know We don't names. even go in their house. Yeah. So when then they just welcome her in the house, it's like. And also remember, Kelly's in junior high still. She's in eighth grade. And um, John Jay is a freshman. They don't go to the same school. Right now, but they did last year and the year before. Yeah, so, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, it's right not like Right now, they close. don't go to the same school, but, you know, that's, that's like. A good point. But that's like this coming this year, we have two kids that have been in the same school for three years. All of a sudden, now they're, one's in junior high and one's in high school. And they never even hung out going to the same school. They're surely not going to start now, that kind no, of thing. No. Yeah. I was just going to say, but, like, some of, you know, our 15-year-old's friends, it would be nothing to see them with the 14-year-old, oh, 13-year-old. Yeah. Like, they're a great apart. They they know each other's friends and yeah. all that stuff. So, I mean, it's, it's not that far off on the age. So, later on that very morning, McVetty, Detective McVetty, accompanied by uniformed police officer Howard Charney, went back to the Golub residence with the intent to search the place. <laughs> now, now, they needed a search warrant to do so. But that would take a while to get a judge to sign off on. Not so offer to let you search. Well, yeah. So they asked Elizabeth Golub if she would just sign a form of consent to search. And that was usually customary. If someone's missing, especially a child, like, it's like, yeah, absolutely. Come on in. Especially if you don't think, like, she probably doesn't know anything's going on. Right. So she's probably like, why do they keep asking about John? Like, John, what'd you do? Like, come on, check it out. So this is kind of important. Elizabeth eventually, although very hesitantly, agreed because... The detectives were like, okay, hey, we just want to make sure Kelly isn't here hiding out with John Jay. No big deal. We're not looking for anything else other than Kelly. Like, drugs or anything, like, it doesn't matter. Like, I, we're here looking for Kelly, right? That's a problem. Yeah. John Jay was standing next to his mom and was like, mom, just let him let him look. Like, I didn't do shit. Like, yeah, like, I didn't do anything. Like, let him look. Let him look. Yeah, absolutely. So before the official search, so she signed it. She signed off. Before the official search began... John Golub Sr. arrived home and accomp- he was at work. He arrived home and he accompanied the investigators around the house. He was probably like, okay, if you're going to do this, I'm going to go with you. Well, Make you sure would. You yeah. Because, one, they don't have a warrant. They don't have a warrant. So this yeah. is important to note for people that don't know this. So I figured you could expand more on this well, than I, I could. I could talk about this for hours. Uh, but, <laughs> I mean, so when you're trying to get a search warrant, like Courtney says, it, it's not a quick thing. You have to have... Refutable evidence, the judge has to sign off on it saying you have enough evidence to search for this. And depending on the scope they were asking for, what I mean by that is if they're asking you to see if her body's in there, it'll be a quick signature. If they're asking to see if any foul play, any evidence of drugs or anything like that, it's a much deeper search. So it's going to take much more evidence for them to even get it. So, you know, the trick of the trade was always, well, while we're trying to get that, let's just go ask, like, Let's just ask for a consent to search. Fill out a form, say you consent to our search, but you have to be specific on it and say this is what I'm fucking searching for. I am looking for Kelly. I'm not looking for drugs. I'm and not looking there's for there's two things to note with that. 
if you find something mm-hmm. that is not in the scope of your search, you cannot take it. It's not admissible. It is illegal search and seizure at that point. Right. Also, if they sign the consent to search in the middle of the search, they can just be like, you know what? Fuck you. I'm done. You're not searching shit. Yeah. Even if they saw like, and I say that, I don't know. I don't know how this comes in the story, but if, if you know, he's walking around with his wife and his wife happens to walk into a closet and fucking Kelly's dead bodies in there. Mm-hmm. She can come out and be like, no more searching. I revoked the consent. We're done. But you would have to be informed as the person signing the consent form. But you I mean, could do that. If you know your rights and yeah. stuff. But if you, yeah. know, but you, she could. She could find the dead body in another room and run out and be like, you know, yeah. the search is over. Police can't search anything else anymore. Right. Without a search form. They're done. Yep. Makes sense to me. So John Sr. arrived home. He's going to accompany the two investigators around the house. The three men searched upstairs first. And it was here that they noticed that the door was removed for from Robert Golub's room. When asked why, John informed them that Robert had been giving them problems. So they removed his door and replaced it with a curtain. Then they made their way down to the basement. Upon entering the basement, investigators noticed it was filled with crap, guys. Crap everywhere. It was hard to maneuver through the massive clutter and trash, and they had noted that it was impossible to even see the floor beneath their feet. It was so bad, in fact, (laughs) that the officers asked John Sr. if anything had by chance happened down in the basement, and John was like, no, it's always like this. (laughs) Then he proceeded to blame his wife, saying that she was just a shitty housekeeper. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) It's not far off, right? You would blame me, like, jokingly, or I'd blame you jokingly. Like, well, shit, fucking cleaned it. Or you'd be like, I asked him to clean this shit six months ago, and he still hasn't done it. Like, <laughs> Just put it on the other person. So as they made their way through the dark and dingy basement and worked their way back towards the stairs, they noticed a small closet with a closed door blocked by a steamer trunk. And beside that closet door was another larger bedroom-sized door. And in a nearby area, there was a sink and a toilet. So there's a whole, like, little living area down there. Like, you could, somebody could live in the basement. Yeah, I mean, a lot of places back in the day had a a sink and sometimes even toilets in the basement. Right. So Officer Charney asked John Golub what was in the closet, to which John replied, that's a storage area. So Charney asked Golub to assist him in moving the trunk aside so they could look in the closet. Once inside, Charney shone his flashlight because it burnt pitch black, and he noticed a green zipper sleeping bag laying half inclined against the wall in an awkward position. Charney crawled toward the back of the closet and unzipped the sleeping bag like a few centimeters, and he saw with his flashlight what appeared to be a human leg caked in dried blood. After Officer Charney pulled himself together, not used to seeing this kind of stuff. You're not expecting to like look through nope. a sleeping bag and see a body part. He summoned Detective McVetty to show him. John Golub, seeing, you know, everyone's reaction, he's like, what is that? Is it a body? Like, he was genuinely surprised. Yeah, and we know this because before anyone could stop him, he was running up the stairs yelling at his wife, oh my God, they found a body. Yeah, so he was genuinely surprised. I can say that confidently well, in my probably, opinion they probably had no idea I mean, they were surprised because one either you're arrogant as fuck to let the police just come and search your house knowing there's a body in it mm-hmm. either you're just fucking confident they're not going to find it or you have no idea well and 
to Detective McVetty when he came in to look because he hadn't seen it. He's inspecting the rest of the basement. He's just trying to figure and out where to look. And he peered in and he was like, I think it's like a mannequin. And nothing would surprise you because there's all kinds of shit in this basement, right? So he went back and he he kind of looked and he's like, yeah, that's, 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 a, not a that's not a mannequin. So after the basement was sealed off, investigators went outside to call for backup. But guys... By now, a very restless Richard and Victoria Tenius were waiting on the front lawn of the Gollop house. Now they know something's up. Where they were met by Detective McVetty, who then informed the Tenniuses that they had, in fact, found a body. Yeah, their worst fear come true. And I just can't imagine the emotions that they must be experiencing. Within less than 24 hours, their little girl went to another house in the neighborhood, and then they discovered that her body was found there. Well, what might be her body, they don't know. She went missing basically the last place she was seen at that house and all of a sudden they found a body in the house. Yeah, it's just heartbreaking. And this is even more heartbreaking, but instantly upon hearing that, Victoria let out a guttural wail and Richard began to cry and shake uncontrollably. So neighbors you, had to come and assist them, of course. You know, you know. They knew. That they was knew. the only they thing that made it. sense. She's probably why they were on that front lawn. They well, knew. Everything in their gut was, I mean, they'd been to the house like nine times. Of called course. It, like everything was saying this was the last fucking place she <sighs> was. And then they find a body there the next day. There's not one hair on my body that is not like standing up right now. That's a 99.9% chance that you know who that is. Mm. It's even said that Officer Brennan, one of the first officers to respond, remember her? She even broke down in tears while summoning other officers on the radio. And as heartbreaking as this already is, the state of the body of Kelly Antinius would be even more heartbreaking. And we'll get into that right after this break. Welcome back. We're back. So... Homicide detective Richard Wells would be the first one to really take a closer look at the body in the basement. Upon touching her, he noticed slippage of the skin, which is an indicator that the body had started to decompose already. Which was odd, seeing as though the the basement was cool enough and she had only been down there less than 24 hours. However, it was determined that because she was zipped inside a thick insulated sleeping bag, her body's heat mm-hmm. was contained and the decomposition process was essentially sped up. Yeah, she was basically in a humidifier. Right, exactly. And in a closed closet. Yeah. The medical examiner was then called as well as the crime scene unit. Detective Wells removed the body still contained in the green sleeping bag and laid it carefully on the basement floor. And they noticed beneath the sleeping bag when they moved it was a white lace curtain that was soaked in blood, and beneath those curtains was a long bayonet antique knife circa World War I. Now comes the hard part, guys, her autopsy results. First of all, the young girl's body was nude and found with no clothing in immediate sight. It was obviously the body of a very young girl, and her face was purple and blackened from massive bruising. It was determined that she had received over 200 blows to the head. Before she died. 200. Before she died. Her throat had been deeply slit so viciously that she was nearly decapitated. 
Large patches of her hair were missing. Most likely, they had been pulled from her scalp by her murderer. Tufts of hair were lying by her torso and another one by her thigh. Lying inside the bag with her was her bra that looked as if it had been dipped in a vat of blood. That's how soaked in blood it was. The bra was knotted as as if it had been used as a device to choke her with and clasped inside the knot was another tuft of hair. The skin on her body was absolutely layered with bruises. There was just an unnecessary amount of violence used. Whoever had done this was obviously in some kind of animalistic fit of rage. But that's not even the most shocking part, if you can believe it. I can. From the top of her chest to just below her vaginal area, her body had been split open, exposing all of her internal organs. Her genital area had been completely mutilated, so it was impossible to tell if she had been raped. Which we can guess she was. Oddly, very oddly, there were lacerations, very shallow lacerations of all sizes, almost latticing her whole upper torso. Not deep cuts, but very shallow. Torture cuts. Yeah, and um, cross, like tic-tac-toe patterns all over Torture her. Torture cuts. Yeah. I can only speculate, yeah, that this was done to torture her while she was still alive. Like, a monster was responsible for this. They started out just seeing how much they could fuck with her and just were cutting. And even if they were playing tic-tac-toe like a sicko, they were just trying to torture her. The lower portion of her legs, like her calves and feet, were wrapped in garbage bags. One thing of note with this body, there were zero defensive wounds. Which tells me one of two things. Either she was unconscious while she was being viciously mutilated, or there were two or more assailants, one to hold her down while... Yeah, I mean, there's two or more, but if she took 200 blows to the head, my theory would be that the first couple blows to the head rendered her at least dazed, if not unconscious, and then she just was not able to fight back from there. Right. Yeah. Even if they held her... That's true. Because you don't bruise unless you're alive. Plus the blood's pumping. No, I mean, she's bruised because she's, she's alive. The bruises were she's done pre-mortem. I mean, she, yeah. was, she was bruised before she died because, like you said, that happens. The blood's pumping. That's why you're alive. But if there's no defensive wounds, there's nothing like skin under the fingernails. Like, if someone's holding me down while someone's trying to beat me, like, I'm fighting. Like, right. I'm, I'm still going to be able to, like, if you're holding my arm, I'm still going to be able to scratch you. Mm-hmm. Something, right? So they would have scratches on them. She'd have skin under her fingernails. Anything. Unless she just walked in, maybe like one opened the door and the other just bashed her in the head. Right. And then they just animalistically beat her. Oh, she's not dead. Let's fuck with her kind of thing. Yeah. She's not going to be, there's not going to be no defensive wounds at that point. That's what I think it is. So there was a bite on her neck that was determined to be inflicted before she died. And there was a bite on her buttocks that was determined to be inflicted after she died. I'm saying this because... And researching the case, it's it said that that they could never match the bite marks to anybody. So I was almost going to not even add in the bite marks, but I just wanted to tell you she this was an animal that did this. They just couldn't match the they couldn't say definitively that the bite marks matched anybody. Right, and the reason for that too is we don't know, you know the uh, the level of the bite mark. It could have been like very superficial, very we small bite marks. You just couldn't get enough determination from right. the dental record. Right. It's not like they took a huge, massive chunk. Yeah. And you're like, oh, there's no doubt that these, or they took a giant chunk and there's no like. There are some people that say that the bite mark 
matches somebody. There's, you know, in the family, there's some people that say that the bite marks do not. They could have taken a huge just we chunk just don't of know. flesh with it. And, and then it's really hard you can't to see an impression. The tooth imp- yeah, exactly. There's no teeth to impression match it. to match anything. So we're, I just decided to not even speculate. We have enough other evidence to. to well, clearly, you already have enough to begin with. Exactly. So the young girls, remember, we don't have an ID yet. So I'm going to call her the young girl. Um, the official cause of death would later be ruled as homicide by asphyxiation due to mechanical trauma. Or in other words, something was used to strangle her. Just choked to death, yeah. In this case, her own bra. It was determined by her time of death that she had been alive and tortured for 20 minutes before she died. Then further violence was done to her postmortem. So Kelly suffered immensely, and 20 minutes may not seem like a long time to you or me, but when you're being tortured, it's eternity. But with that... And she's 13. Exactly. With our theory, or my theory, that she was, you know, brought into the house and basically clubbed fucking unconscious, we can only hope that was the case. So that 20 minutes, she was either barely conscious or not conscious and didn't really suffer that much. That's the only thing you can hope. Mm. The only thing you can hope in that. Uh, Yeah, we we can hope that. Now, this is weird. Well, Wells, Detective Wells, was worried about getting the body of this poor young girl identified. He was faced with something he had never been faced with before. Golub's family friend, lawyer slash lawyer, arrived at the house and wanted to speak to him. So the detective on the case. Obviously, the Golub's had called him down there. So (laughs) the body of the girl wasn't even out of the house and they were already lawyering up. I think personally that this is odd behavior. Again, just my own personal opinion. Maybe it's more common than I think. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going (laughs) to tell you right now, if for some way in shape or form, a body was found in my house Mm -hmm. and I had no fucking idea what was going on. Mm -hmm. The first call I am making is to the family lawyer, like, motherfucker, I don't know what's going down. I don't know what happened. Get your ass over here. Because before somebody says something stupid, before somebody admits something, before anything happens, come over here. I don't think, that would not even cross my mind. I'd be like, first of all, why is the body in my house? Which he did. He did. He freaked out and was like, yeah. what the fuck? And then he was like, shit, I need to protect my family. Yeah. That's just crazy. So anyways, as Detective Wells was dealing with this, he was approached by a man named Robert Player, who was a former police officer, and he was acting as a Tenyus family spokesperson who informed Detective Wells that he wanted to make himself available to identify the body of the young girl. Probably a family friend from the local police department is no longer, probably no longer in law enforcement, so he's allowed to do that. Right. So Wells was actually kind of relieved because he really did not want her don't want parents, to show the parents or a family that. member to see you don't want to show the parents in that, that yeah, no, state. No. Oh my God. So anyways, Wells showed Robert Player a Polaroid that they had taken of the girl's body being very careful. He used his hand to cover up her body like from the shoulder area down. And Player from that picture confirmed that it was indeed the body of 13-year-old Kelly Antinius. Which everyone kind of knew at this point. But I have to say, I'm like I said, I'm thankful her parents didn't have to see oh, her daughter in that state. So Even just her face because it was beaten so badly. one bright spot. Well, yeah, you can imagine her face was just unrecognizable as a human, you know? No, I mean, clearly it was recognizable enough. Oh, uh, yeah, I know, but... Oh. Because, you know, it, you, she could beat him 200 times and she was bruised and stuff like that, but she was dead. So in 20 minutes, so it was 
some bruising, but there's not going to be a ton that would normally be there because there was no blood pumping. So they escorted Robert Player back to the Tenya's home where he informed her mom and dad that the body found in the Golub basement was indeed their daughter. And by now, reporters were camped outside the Tenya's home. And it was said that recordings of her poor mother's screams could be heard from outside. And several news stations even captured it in their audio. It's just beyond heartbreaking. Detective Wells said he could damn near hear it from the Golub's house. It was just, uh, just I can't, I can't even put myself in that state of mind. It's just, oh. So Detective Wells immediately got to questioning the Golub family, now with their lawyer present, about the exact timeline of the day that Kelly went missing. Their daughter, Adele, who now lived in Manhattan, had arrived and she was present. But the only Golub family member who was not in attendance was Robert. Where the fuck is he? <laughs> what you doing, Robert? So the family's lawyer, named William McGoldrick, stated that he was representing everyone in this room. And Detective Wells asked if he was also representing Robert, and McGoldrick sarcastically said, do you see him in this room? And Wells was like, no. And McGoldrick was like, then I'm not representing him. He, like, now's not the time, asshole, you know? Don't be so a douchebag. That's why I fucking hate lawyers. Sorry if you're a lawyer and <sighs> listen to us. Fucking hate lawyers. Defense lawyers, I hate. Defense lawyers, yeah. Well, they're doing their job. No, but like he's just like you, you don't have to be an asshole about it. Like we're dealing with like a horrific murder of a thirteen-year-old. And now's the time a, to joke around. Fucking dickweed. Just be like, no, I'm representing all the present family members. I'm not representing the ones that are not present. Like, that's all you have to say. Show don't be a fucking asshat. Goldrick. Be a little fuck witch, whatever you want to call this guy. I got a lot of names for him. I'm sorry. He's pissing me off. Well, it's very odd that he's choosing to represent every family member except Robert. That he must have been told. He, the family he must was have been probably, told. Well, the family was probably like, there's only one fucking person that could yeah. have done this. Yeah. It wasn't the daughter. She was gone. Right? Yeah. The 14-year-old's not capable of this shit. And he had no idea what was going on. Mom and dad clearly had no idea, so they knew who the fuck it was. Yeah. yeah. So the family's interests now are like, I'm going to protect my husband or the husband's like, I'm going to protect my wife, my daughter and my 14 year old, because I know they had nothing to do with this period. So the first Golub to be questioned was John Jay, the 14 year old upon questioning. He repeated the same story he had been repeating for the past two days. When questioned if he had made that phone call to Kelly's house before she left, he denied making it. He is a little shit. And he even said that he was sure the police had a way of checking who made that phone call. Like, why are you even questioning me? Go find for, out for yourself, you know? He's a little shit. Or he was just like, I didn't make the phone call. No, I know you can go check shit. it. I, I'm just saying. <laughs> or he was like, no, I didn't make the phone call. You guys can figure that shit out. Yeah, I didn't yeah. do it. Then it was time to learn John Sr.'s whereabouts that Friday. He said he had left for work uh, to go to Getty Service Station at about 6.45 a.m., worked all day with his co-workers. And then Elizabeth went on to give her schedule that Friday. She had taken John Jay to school at 7.40 a.m. as usual, then had driven to her own job where she remained for the remainder of that day. So they both have locked tight alibis. Exactly, exactly. John Jay, who happened to always be chronically truant, seemed to have managed to remain at school 
all day that day on Friday before <laughs> by luck by luck before returning to his home at 3 p.m. along with his two friends Mick Donnell and Chris Earl. Mick Donnell. His name is Mick, and then his last name is Donnell. So he hangs up with McDonald. Isn't that crazy? I thought that too. And then Chris Earl, the older Golub son, no, Robert. They all have yeah. multiple first names. They're all guilty. <laughs> I've told you my theory. People with multiple first names, you can't trust them. <laughs> Chris Earl, Mick Donald. No, fuck that. John Jay. John, John. he's got three first names. <laughs> well, he's got no, he's got a last name. He's got a real last name. That's when you're that's when you're extra bad when you have three first names. <laughs> so the older Golub son, Robert, who had been unemployed since the previous summer, was still at home being useless when John Jay and his friends arrived at the Golub house that day after school. He apparently had been there all day being useless. <laughs> I said that already. <laughs> After playing Nintendo for about 45 minutes, John Jay and his two friends left the house about 3.45 to go and play a planned game of pickup basketball at a nearby court. Which goes back to my statement earlier. His two friends were like, yo, your house is fucking nasty, bro. Can we fucking leave? <laughs> That's probably exactly like, right. I can't even see leave. the TV because there's some shit between me and the TV and I'm standing up because there's nowhere to sit on the couch. So on his way home from work, John Sr. spotted his youngest son at a bus stop like trying to get a bus back home after the pickup game. And and, um, he picked him up. And the two arrived home about 4.45. And John Sr. knew the exact time because, sorry, 4.55. He knew the exact time because it was right five minutes before his favorite show was about to start, TJ Hooker. (laughs) After work, Elizabeth Golub stopped by a grocery store. And uh, she was home by 5.30. As per usual, by 6 p.m., everyone had taken their plate of food that she had prepared to their individual bedrooms to eat their dinner and do their own thing. They were not a close family. They ate in their rooms. I mean, that's a, that's a natural thing for a family, though. Like, we do that with our kids sometimes. It's like, everybody just grab your food. And- when we're each doing our own thing, yeah. but it's very rare. We no, try I'm, just, to, I'm just saying it's not uncommon. Like, I, I was just bringing up the point that it's not uncommon that every family doesn't sit down at 6 p.m. every night and eat together yeah. in a group of seven it's like, right, right, right. you know, I get home from late from work. You're doing something. One of the kids has homework. One's doing this. Yeah, it's right. like, hey, just grab your this pizza. This family was or, never close, though, and they never eat together. Pizza night. Yeah. We always have pizza night. It's like, hey, just grab your yeah. pizza and go do whatever you're doing. Like, we don't have to sit here and eat pizza together. Right. I lost my place again. Sorry. I do that to you. You do. <laughs> I'm mesmerizing so you get lost. That's not it. <laughs> well, that's what I think. <laughs> she did recall, however, that she had to wake up her oldest son, Robert, from a very deep sleep. To go and get his dinner. As for the evening of the day Kellyanne went missing, John Jay, who wasn't always the most well-behaved kid, was supposed to be grounded. So his parents thought he was in his room all night. However, he had snuck out to go out with his friends for a few hours, but he was home by 10.15, just after his dad had gone to bed. Robert was apparently out drinking at a bar with his friend Paul Zarella and was back home by 11 when his mother went to bed. So, one thing was very clear. Detectives needed to speak to Robert, his friend Paul Zarella as well, as John Jay's two friends, Mick, Donald, and um, Chris Earl. Fucking Mick Donald. <laughs> now I'm laughing every time. You know, it was funny when I was researching this. I didn't even, it didn't even occur to me. I'm just like, Mick. But then. <laughs> How does Mick Donald not ring a bell didn't even, I, I, I have a hundred jokes lined up right now. I didn't say it out loud because it's in my head, you know? So, <laughs> The sarcastic person in me was just like, McDonald's? Really? (laughs) 
So uniformed police were able to locate Robert Golub, who was driving in a van with his buddy Paul Zarella. So they pulled him over and brought the two men in for questioning. Donald and Earl were also being questioned there at the same time. So everyone's being talked to. Paul Zarella was questioned first. He claimed that he had picked up Robert to go drinking about 9 p.m. Friday night and dropped him off. He dropped Robert back off at his house at about 1 a.m. That's a little different than the story that the Golubs told detectives. But right. Zarella was then sent home, and the two um, juveniles, Mick Donald <laughs> and Chris Earl, were questioned individually in the presence of their parents. The boys' stories were all consistent with John Jay's version of events, and it was noted by Detective Wells that no cuts or abrasions appeared on either of the boys' hands or arms, and it would have been nearly impossible to commit the assault and murder on Kelly without the assailant having some form of injury on their person. It goes back to what I was saying. Even if you were holding her down, she's going to scratch you or something like that, and especially if you're talking about 14-year-olds, they're not much bigger than her. And Kelly, I didn't mention this before, but she was very tall. She was 5'9", and she was bigger than these boys. That's so what I'm saying. she could have kicked so her ass. Even 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 if she's smaller, like the average size of a you know eighth or ninth grade girl boy, with, you know, there's some exceptions, but they're generally not that much of a difference. And the boys aren't like so big and strong that they can overpower somebody that easily. Right. In fact, Earl, Chris Earl, even had been wearing a cast on his arm from a previous injury. So then it was time to question the final member of the Golub family, Robert. Robert had waived his rights to an attorney and was seemingly cooperative. He vehemently denied seeing Kelly at all on the day that she went missing. And he went on to calmly give his version of events that day. He said that he woke up between 10 and 10.30, ate breakfast, and walked to King Cullen, where he had bought a muscle magazine that he spent all day reading. He watched a little bit of TV and had only left his house in the afternoon to retrieve his family's mail. He recalled that shortly after that, his little brother and his little brother's two friends arrived home from school. They did their own thing, and Robert went back to his room and watched some more TV. He said that John Jay and his friends were listening to his stereo and while they smoked some weed. So I guess he came to when Robert got up to get something to eat or something. They went into... Robert's room blasted the stereo and then we went back into the room smoking weed. And Robert later found his, when he came back upstairs, he's like, dude, fuck, turn my stereo down. And they said, we didn't do it. So that was just turn bits. But this kind of also lines up. Do you remember when um, blasting rock music? Yeah. Blasting rock music. So very strange. Concocts his little alibi there. Yeah. And it's strange that John Jay didn't mention that as well, but Robert did. Or John Jay's two friends, because their story, all three of their stories were fucking identical. For the most part. There were a few, the detective said there was a few minor inconsistencies, but they're also, you know. They're 14. They're going to have, like, when I say identical, I mean, the timelines might be off by five to ten minutes. Yeah. But the activities are all identical, and they're not talking about this together. So we did this. We played Nintendo. We went and went to the basketball court. We did X, Y, Z. By the way, this is our speculation that you're going to hear a lot of because we have a lot of room for speculation later is going to be our opinion. And people are going to have very strong opinions about this case one way or the other. 100%. I also want everybody to know that I make a lot of jokes on here to alleviate some of the the tension (laughs) and the darkness of this. That's just my nature. That's how I deal with it. So don't please don't be offended. 
And if I do offend you by making jokes about some of these things, I apologize because this is a very dark, serious, horrific fucking event. This is a tough case. So I'm not making jokes about the case. I'm just making jokes about the bad guys, really. So after Robert assumed that his brother and his friends had left um, to go and play pickup basketball, he drifted off to sleep from his long, hard day of doing nothing. Oh, muscle magazine (laughs) wore him out, man. And he was awakened at 6.30 that night by John Jay, who told him there was a girl on the phone for him. His words. But Robert said he didn't want to take the call and went back to sleep. His mother woke him up about 7 to eat dinner. His friend Paul then reportedly picked him up to go out drinking about 8.30, and then he returned home around midnight while when everyone else was already in bed, he said. Then Detective Wells dealt the big blow. He said, Robert... We're no longer investigating a missing persons case. We're investigating a murder. When was the last time you were in your basement? Out of all the things Robert could possibly say in response to he this. He shit himself. He just didn't know what. Like, I would have said a murder? Who? What the fuck are you talking about? What are you talking about? Robert thought for a while and said, oh, I was in my basement two, about two weeks ago. That was his response. And that is <laughs> damn near a nail in a coffin to own any police person. You're like, this is your dude. Like, if you're like, yeah, we're not talking about a missing person in any guy. We're talking about a murder. And you're like, that was like two weeks ago. Like, no, it's like you said. It's like your initial I, reaction is like, what the fuck do you mean? Who the fuck was murdered? Did you hear me? <laughs> Where was, did you find a body in my house or something? Like, you know what I mean? There's like a hundred yeah. questions that run through my head. Not. Why do you want to know about the basement? Two weeks ago. Why? Was what? Yeah, I know. I would just be free. And that was his response. Anyways. So then Detective Wells glanced down at Robert's hands, which were covered in cuts and abrasions. Oh, no figure. So, well, after Robert was asked where these abrasions come from, he really didn't have any explanation for anything. And he was just sticking to his previous story. He did agree to take a lie detector test, however, but the results came back inconclusive. It's suspected that Robert intentionally sabotage the test by fidgeting and moving his body back and forth. And he had to repeatedly be told, look, please sit still, like stop moving. Yeah. That's a, that's. So I don't know. It's just what the, that's kind of a miss that you could manipulate it. Do that like that. Mm -hmm. Most of the time when it's inconclusive, it's because they can't tell when you're telling the truth and when you're not, it's not because you're fucking fidgeting. Cause if you're fidgeting during certain things and not certain things, It'll pick that up. Yeah. Your heart rate's still going to change when you're lying. There's all these other things that measures. What probably is going on is he doesn't know where the truth and the lies are. So there's no there's no differentiating. He's he's reacting the same way. That's 90% of the time when it's inconclusive. Mm-hmm. Like they can't tell what's true and real. It's yeah. not because you're fidgeting. Because if you're fidgeting while you're asking me questions, certain questions, even if I'm forced fidgeting, they don't change my heart rate. They don't change temperature, body. They don't do all that stuff. Right. It's when you're just like, you can't even like, you're so fucked off. You can't even like tell what's real or not. That's why. And that right there is why that these tests are not admissible in court (laughs) because there is so much, you know, such a big margin for error. A hundred percent. I mean, it's, it goes back to, I almost don't want to tell this story, but it goes back to what breathalyzer is the same way. Mm-hmm. The, the theory of if I eat peanut butter, it will come up. Or, or suck on a penny. If I put a penny in there in my tongue, guess what? You're still going to pop hot. But you know what? You can make them inconclusive by overloading your mouth with things like toothpaste and stuff like that. 
But you can't. You can register them inconclusive because it can't get an accurate reading. Because normally when they do it, they make you do it two to three times. Are you going to edit that out? No. <laughs> normally when they do that, they make you do it two to three times, right? He's a cop. He's an ex-cop, by the way. He's not just a professional drinker no, driver. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but they make you do it two to three times. So if you Please get don't one that, that pops, don't one that doesn't, one that's, one that's in, unreadable, it's right. an inconclusive result. Right. Okay. In order to do that, you'd literally have to drive around drunk with a tube of toothpaste and eat the motherfucker before you got pulled over. Like, <laughs> God, I'd want to do that. <laughs> I'm just saying it can be the inconclusive is not like you trick the system. Right. I see it's what just you're like saying. There's a variation that can't be explained between one or the other. So it's just not conclusive enough to say yes or no. Right. Right. I gotcha. So after the inconclusive lie detector test, Robert was interrogated for another 15 hours without any breaks. They were trying to break him. However, Detective Wells received a call from a man named John O'Grady that informed him they had to cease questioning because he was now representing Robert Gollum. He lured up. His family lured, lawyered up for him. Yeah, they probably heard he fucked up. <laughs> So seemingly another dead end, which is infuriating because someone was murdered in the Golub house by one or more members of the Golub family. And it's hard to believe that the pieces aren't just coming together just naturally, you know? Yeah, it's not like they can rule out that, like, <laughs> maybe it wasn't them. Like, the fucking like, body was know, in your basement. We know. The body was in your basement within the last 24 where hours. Where it happened. Well, sort of where it happened. Less yeah. than 24 hours ago, she disappeared. 24 hours later, there's a body in your basement. So they had nothing... <laughs> They had to let Robert Golub go right now for the time being. They had nothing to hold him on. And without a confession, investigators are going to need some solid evidence. So let's they, go back to the crime scene. Well, go and ahead. To your point, they can't hold him much longer because they can't charge him. And like you said, they interrogated him for like 15 hours before the lawyer called. Mm -hmm. So they can only hold him for 24 hours. Yeah. So at this point, they're like, might as well just let you go. We're not going to get shit. Yeah. They can't just hold him just in case. Now, what they can do is tail the fuck out of him when he leaves. So this is odd, but not as much blood as one would expect was found in the basement, even after they started moving stuff around. It's not odd. It just means the body was moved. Is it possible that the basement was so filthy and nasty that blood was concealed to the naked eye? I think it is. And I have a picture of the basement, so we'll be able to kind of see. It's a bad picture, but we can kind of get an idea. So even after such a brutal beating had occurred there, I mean, remember, Kelly had been beaten over the head 200 times. There should have been blood spatter everywhere. Like, that place should have been a bloodbath. Mm -hmm. So is it possible that the basement was just that filthy? It's crazy. No. I, 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 haven't, I don't know what the crime scene turns up, but I can tell you right off my initial, my initial thoughts. She was not killed in the basement. She was beaten inside the door. Mm -hmm. She had plastic bags wrapped around her feet, probably because that's where she was bleeding to when they were trying to put her in the bag. So they used that to contain blood from going anywhere or keep her from going everywhere. Plastic bags on the feet is weird to me. I've never heard that before. I, I hadn't. I didn't even know. My only what thought process is they're trying to pick the body up mm -hmm. and that's keeping the blood from running down as she's dead. Oh, down maybe, her legs maybe. as they put her in the bag. Because the bag, if she was killed in it, it should have blood splatter all over it. Right, right. And outside, yeah, inside. The closet should have it all over the place. Yeah. They also probably wrapped her in that shower curtain or curtain or whatever the hell it was. So at least the head beating didn't take place in the basement. I, don't I think have anything a did. theory. I don't think anything did. Well, something did because, and I'll tell you why, you might change your tune after this. Some blood was found, however, um, a box of attache, attache cases, like brief, little briefcases, 
was located and that appeared to be resting in a puddle of water. But upon further examination, when the box was moved, it was actually resting in a big pool of what was later determined to be Kelly's blood. So in one of those attache cases, Kelly's bloodied clothes that she had been seen wearing were located. Finally, we found the clothes. Couldn't find her clothes before. You have bloody with the clothes. Well, it was noted that her turtleneck had had several holes in it, indicating that at least some of Kelly's attack stabbings had occurred while she was still clothed. Right. And then which, she was stripped. Which, you know, very possible it could have been in the basement. But to my theory, it wasn't done in the basement. They stabbed the shit out of her. Mm-hmm. Who knows how much, like, we don't necessarily know exactly how much. That's, those clothes are soaked in blood. Mm-hmm. So you put them in a little fucking briefcase and they're soaked enough, the blood's going to pour out of the briefcase and make a yeah, and So it could have been done. It doesn't to me say it was done here because mm-hmm. the blood would, if it's puddled, that's one thing. If it's puddled but streaked all over, that's that means things were moved. Yeah. It means it was, if it was just streaks from the puddle. Or it was it was just, just a, no, it was just puddled. If it was just a pure puddle, that tells me something was soaked in blood and was just leaking Nothing out or was pouring smeared. out. There was some blood spatter, but not much. But a, a smear, if you had a body in that. Puddles are different. Than it, there'd be a smear. Smears. You would have stepped in it. You would have dragged something across it. There would have been smears everywhere. A second attache case contained a blue tablecloth soaked in blood along with a bloodied piece of glass. The investigators found something interesting, something else interesting. They found a bloody fingerprint on the molding inside of the closet where Kelly's body had been stored. Uh Uh-oh. So this is big. It's a fingerprint. Fuck yeah. The print was sent off or processed to see if it matched anyone in the family member, uh, any one of the family members, and guess what? Although the print had been somewhat smudged in transit, it could not be definitively tied to Robert, nor could it be tied to John Jay or his two friends that day. John Jay, Elizabeth, and John all then submitted prints for comparison, and it didn't match them either. The investigation was at a complete standstill until one day, until one day a fingerprint specialist was looking at that fingerprint on his desk and he just kept staring at it. And he realized, you know what? This isn't a fingerprint. This is a palm print. And he raced it over to Detective Wells and they were successfully able to match the palm print to Robert Golub. Which is important to know. You know, I'll chime in real quick on my side of it. If you get a partial handprint, Sometimes the upper portion of the palm or the right, the outside portion of it or under the thumb can look like a fingerprint. That's what they were saying. Yeah, yeah. It, it can look like research. the tip of a finger, mm-hmm. especially if it's only part of it, especially like in the under crevice, your, they under, said. Here. Yeah, down by your thumb. Mm-hmm. That part right there can look like a thumbprint. Mm-hmm. Or, and like I said, if you only like if you're reaching around a corner or a doorway or a door frame, you're yeah. only going to get a piece of it. So it can absolutely look like a fingertip. But don't get too excited. <laughs> I'm not. All celebrations were halted, however. Robert Golub could not be immediately arrested. See, there was already an affidavit signed and filed just 24 hours prior saying that the latent fingerprint, in quotation marks, did not match Robert Golub. So effectively, it was not enough to charge Golub with the murder and arrest him because 
this particular piece of evidence would not hold up on its own in court. The defense would, would annihilate it. Would, it. it would be a mistrial. The defense would be like, you just said no, be a this mistrial. does not, yeah. It would go, it'd be thrown out as a mistrial for pro- improper handling of evidence and all that kind of stuff. But guys, this enraged, enraged the public because all of this information was leaking out. And I mean, they were pissed. They're like, well, this motherfucker did it. Yeah, exactly. So by now the public was outraged and the Golub family, they were actually being harassed at work as well in their own as well as in their Shit. own home. As the investigation chugged ahead, weeding through the mounds and mounds of clutter, trying to find any lick of evidence they could, the public understandably grew more and more angry. To make matters worse, like I said, confidential information from the investigation was being leaked to the press, and this made tempers flare even more. It got to the point where Elizabeth and John Sr. couldn't even go to the grocery store. Their house was vandalized. I'm not saying I feel sorry for them. I'm not saying that. I'm I do, but I don't. Facts. I do, but I don't. People would try to cut off their vehicle while they were driving to make them wreck. And at one point, and I'm just skimming over this, but there, I can make a whole different story about this. At one point, Victoria Tenius was actually charged. So Kellyanne's mom was charged with driving her Cadillac at Elizabeth Golub with the intent to run her over. <laughs> so she attempted Mrs. Yeah. Golub's life, she's which not in the right state of mind right now. Her daughter was gutted, literally. And of course, she's and the whole world knows that it was her the son. The whole world knows. Yeah. And he's just so things free. got real dirty real quick, and the local papers were absolutely just eating it up because it, the media, media is, is a bunch of spineless <laughs> fucking jellyfish. They are. However, there was a ray of hope when Detective Wells took another look at the blue, bloody tablecloth they found in one of the attache cases in the basement. Do you remember that? Along yeah. with the piece of broken glass, yeah. he had missed one detail before. There were small puncture holes in this tablecloth with little spots of blood on it that appeared to match the very small abrasions on Robert Golub's hand. And there were also ridges and slight tears in this tablecloth that matched like the edge of the broken piece of glass that was found with the tablecloth in the attache case. So basically what I'm trying to say is that He's, Detective Wells is thinking Robert Golub used this tablecloth like as a handle, as a guard for his hand mm-hmm. while he held the broken piece of glass and tortured Kelly. And that's where those lattice marks on her upper torso came from. Yeah. And then in pressing hard and in stabbing at her, he punctured his own hand and wounded it. It slipped. You find any dry of section of that shit and you dust the fuck out of it. Then to further his theory, this piece of broken glass match the small insignificant cuts made on Katie Kelly's sorry I'm so sorry made on Kelly's upper torso remember yeah so you just talked about that now this is a crazy cool fact which is much needed relief for this super frustrating case now both of the brothers John Jay and Robert were typo blood and they were the only Golub family members in that house with typo blood so this may have been another roadblock because that was the only other blood than, than Kelly's blood found in the basement. But newly developed DNA testing showed, it's not been used before, showed that the blood in the basement belonged to two people and two people only, Kellyanne Tenius and Robert Golub. 
Never before had DNA testing been used in New York to solve a homicide, but Kellyanne's case would be the first. Good. According to DNA testing performed, the likelihood that the blood found on the tablecloth belonged to anyone other than Robert Golub was one in 707 million. I guess it's fucking his. Boom. It's fucking his. Science. <laughs> on March 23rd. <laughs> you said that and I see your notes and you literally wrote boom. Science. Did. <laughs> On March 23rd, Robert Golub was arrested and charged with the murder of Kellyanne Tenius. The trial was long. How it was fuck was it long? An entire year, and it was hard on both families. But it was absolute torture for the family of Kellyanne to spend a year in court listening to these horrific details about their daughter's murder. You're spending a year living the fucking thing you're just trying to get past. But they had to get in scientists and that's what I mean. Because this is all new technology. You're reliving. Like the worst thing that's ever happened to your life for an entire year after, you know, however long it took. And of course the defense is like, oh, you messed up the fingerprint, you know, that whole fiasco. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Exactly. Like, it's OJ, OJ style. Yeah. So of course the defense tried to sway the jury from buying the whole DNA theory after the investigation had initially claimed no fingerprint of Roberts was found. But luckily a jury could look past that one minor hiccup. A jury would find Robert Golub guilty of second-degree murder, and he received 25 years to life in prison. Second-degree murder. But, I mean, I guess they were they couldn't prove that he had... It was premeditated. Yeah, you can't prove premeditation. You can prove that he fucking tried to kill her. Yeah. But you can't prove that his, his plan and his intent was to lure her to murder her. This sentence gave Kelly's parents very little consolation. They firmly believed that 14-year-old John Jay was involved as well, which I'm not, I don't know. I feel like if he was, his friends would have at least some inclination and want to throw him under the bus just to get his him friends out of trouble. Like, I'm not, I don't want to get fucking involved in yeah, this shit. Yeah, exactly. Like, I feel like they would have talked, but maybe I'm wrong. Like I feel to, Maybe to bully a girl or to you know, fuck around with her or something like that, they would have been, but when there's a body, they're like, uh, no, yeah. fuck that. I, I just don't, I can't say one way or the other. I just, I feel for them, you know. Robert Golub, as is customary, was asked if he wanted to address the court. And he did. He read from a prepared statement. I'm not going to read it because I really don't give a shit what he has to say. But basically, he didn't admit any fault. In my opinion, unless these guilty assholes choose to admit fault, I think they should be denied being able to speak to the families of the victims in the courtroom. That's just my opinion, but like it's you never should, gonna happen. You should be oh, you wanna say anything? I need a prepared I wanna review fucking it. statement. And if it's if it's anything else, I'm turning your fucking mic off, take him the fuck out of here. If it's anything less than I'm sorry, I'm a guilty asshole, then I go apologize away. for what I did to your family. Like exactly. I'm sorry. Exactly. But if it's just like I didn't do anything, like fuck off, shut up, don't talk. No one cares. Now get this. (laughs) Robert wouldn't admit any fault until November of 2013. That's not long ago, guys. And I'm convinced that it was only because he was up for parole. He later admitted that the killing was accidental. Bullshit. He claimed that when Kellyanne came into the family's house, he was on steroids and he was furious. Then he said he collided with her and that caused her to fall down the stairs knocking her unconscious it was then that he decided to suffocate her after that 
he got mad she wouldn't wake up, so he started to punch her. Sorry, but the the girl was disemboweled, mutilated, and her throat was cut. That didn't happen from a tumble down the stairs, you asshole. Fucking roid rage. That's not roid rage. That's fucking murder and evil and fucking Coco stop. Coconut. Chill out. Coco made her appearance. She always does, doesn't she? She's tired of this episode. (laughs) She's mad. She's like, this shit is ridiculous. Let's get out of here. Can you blame her? So he went on to say, every day I'm being haunted by the day I killed that girl. Couldn't even say her name. Or just say her. I'm very sorry, is what he said. Psychologists will run rampant with that because the way he says that girl. That like, girl. That's, it, de- it makes you her. You mean Kelly. Well, what it does by making a statement like that, it dehumanizes, dehumanizes her. It makes it not as much of a person okay. because it's that girl. Well, if you say every day I couldn't. Can't deal with what I did to Kellyanne or Kelly or to, even to her. Like that's more humanizing than that girl. Like fuck that girl. Everyone thinks you're ugly, Robert. <laughs> oh, he's a fucking horrendous piece of shit. I hope he dropped the soap about every day of his life. Every day. Thankfully, his parole was denied. His last parole was rejected in 2021. Thank God. Good. Robert Golub is now 50 years old and is currently serving his sentence at Green Haven Prison. And there was um, a petition that I had prepared for everybody to sign. But I think since he's he doesn't have a parole coming up, the Tenyus family doesn't have it active right now. But if they ever do, I will be the first one on that to make sure we sign it. <laughs> make no mistake. So Kellyanne's parents went on to sue the Golubs three months after Robert was sentenced for her murder, citing that they were aware of his involvement and also of their son's psychological issues as well as his drug use. The Tenya's family would eventually claim a total of $602 million in damages. Fuck that, yes. (laughs) And maybe, most shocking of all, as of of 2015, the Golubs and the Tenya's family still both live on Horton Street in the same houses over 20 years later. Five houses down from each other. I'm telling you right now, Mm -hmm. and this is not an admission of anything. FBI, if you're listening, because my wife has a really bad search history and she's on a watch list. (laughs) Um, I'd be standing outside their fucking house every day. Every fucking day. No weapon, because I don't want to get charged with shit, but I'm going to be standing out there every fucking day until they leave. Fuck you and live in five houses down from your fucking house when your fucking son murdered my daughter. Fuck you. But let's not let's not end this talking about that asshole. No, okay? fuck that. I want to end on a happier note or maybe a sad well, note, but it's You want to remember the beautiful victim of the story. Remember beautiful Kelly Antinius. So I'd like to read you a few words written by Roberta Gross. Remember Kelly Antinius' best friend. Best friend. Yeah. And she reads this at her funeral. Dear Kelly... Sometimes the hardest word to say is goodbye. You are a very caring, feeling, and emotional person. You were special. We remember the way you always moved your hair to the side. We remember you waving to your friends through the classroom doors. We wanted you to remember your 14th birthday and with happiness. You were the prettiest, most delightful friend. We love you, Kel. We'll miss you. Goodbye from all of us. And she... Roberta has a special place in my heart because she's just, she just, this, 
I, this tore everybody up, but Roberta was inconsolable from the second. Of course. That Kellyanne was, was missing. Best friend. Well, they had put, she was just confused. Like, I'm supposed to come get you, girl. Where are we you? We're about to go to dinner for your birthday. Yeah. Like, we have plans. That's probably the girl that she wanted to go ice skating with, too. Yeah, absolutely. That's like her, that's her, that's her, that's her ride or die. Exactly. Like, and then she finds all this shit out. It's just, and, and she's like, guys, you don't understand. She would not do this. She would not just leave. Like, it's just heartbreaking. It's and terrible. It just makes you, oh, my God. And then, um, I mean, if you look online, you can see so many interviews with Richard and Richard Sr. and Victoria Tenyus, and they're precious people. And, I mean, they've been advocates, of course, for Kellyanne since the moment she went missing. And you just, you feel their pain. And they're just, their a, they're just a family and, with two kids that one of them was just ripped away from them. Yeah. Just, That's all there is to it. For no reason. Typical For day. no fucking reason. No Just reason. Senseless violence. And now you can see why I said that this crime was senseless and unnecessary. Yeah, I'm angry as a motherfucker. I mean, and we still don't know why. To why? This day. And we'll never know why. 40 years we'll later. We'll never know. Did 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 um Robert make that call? Did he get John Jay to make that call? You know, like what happened? There's so many details no one knows. Like you said, there's no motive. Yeah. I, it's to this just, day, 40 years later, there's no motive. A beautiful person was lost. A child was lost. Because um, he's keeping this so close to the chest, Robert, we're never going to know what really happened. I'm assuming it was Robert that called Kelly's house, maybe pretending to be his little brother to get her over. I guarantee that's what it was. He obviously somehow lured her over there. So this was premeditated. It shouldn't have been second degree murder, in my opinion. But there's no way to prove it. There's no way to prove it. My thinking is that he made a sexual advance on her. She rejected him and he flipped in a roid rage and just couldn't stop. Once you throw that first punch, you can't like it's you you can't stop. That's a that's a solid speculation, right? Because like he's 21. She's 13. She thinks she's going to meet John Jay for whatever reason. God knows what he said to get her over there. Like I'm bleeding. Like, hey, it's John know. Jay. I need, I, I need help. My mom's passed out. Something, I mean, you right? don't know. And then he, she shows up and it's the 21-year-old brother. Yeah. Who's, she's 13. Right. And he's like, ooh, baby, baby. And she's just like, what the fuck is going on? Where's John? Right. What the fuck happened? And he's like, oh, droid rage. I'm a piece of shit. And yeah. And does all this shit. Yeah. I mean, I just, he's a little bitch. Mm-hmm. He's oh, a yeah. little pussy. Absolutely. A grown-ass man is probably kicking the shit out of him and tossing his salad every day, and I hope it fucking is painful. <laughs> Fuck that, dude. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I agree. After he spends his days reading Muscle Magazine, fucking five-foot-tall little motherfucker. <laughs> Did you get it all out? No. I don't think I could ever get out how much anger you've put in me from this episode, because this is just a fucking 13-year-old, almost 14-year-old kid just... I know. Living her life, not doing anything wrong, just being a... Good person. A good, four, not even a bad 14-year-old. 13. Like, not even 14. Not even yet. 14. But not even being like, not even doing stupid shit that they shouldn't be doing that everyone does at that age. Yeah. She's just a good kid babysitting her brother. And like you said, who knows what they said to get her over there? Probably something along the line. Probably something like, along. I need help. I need help. I think I my broke my leg. Sick. Something. You know, something's going on. Mm-hmm. And she, being a good kid, was like, hey, hey, little brother, I'll be right back. And that yeah. was the end of it. Absolutely. So <sighs> fuck that, dude. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I'm glad you told this story because her story needs to be told because- Fuck. Mm-hmm. That's horrible. Yeah. And it's awesome to note that she was the first case that DNA was used in the state of New York. Because good for them. Epic. She yeah. was a game changer. 
her death was a, it was meaningful in its meaninglessness. Yep. Meaning, what I what I'm saying in that is her death was fucking meaningless. It wasn't in we don't vain. understand it, but it was the reason why DNA is it. used in in New York. Yeah. Her death was it brought change. It brought change. Yeah. For the good. And now that may not be condolence for the family or the loved ones. Or no, the and, and we know it's not, and nor would it be for me either. But I wouldn't expect it to be. But but yeah, yeah it's they they fought for her since the moment that she as went any missing. Parent would and her story just stuck with me forever, and she touched lots of lives. Any so. parent would fight like that for their kid. Oh, for sure. Except uh, um, the the fucking the Gollum Bob's. family, the fucking ass shit family. Ass <laughs> shit. Because their son's a piece of shit. I don't know them, and I don't know if they had anything to do with it, but fuck them because their son's a piece of shit. Um, John Jay reportedly hasn't been able to, like, keep his name. It, like, he's had to change. He's gone by several different aliases. Oh, shit, because I got to find out his fucking brother's a, this guy. Yeah. Which, you know, we, we can't even begin to speculate. We don't know anything. You, you know nothing other than this piece of shit killed her. Yeah. And they're his family. And that's yep. the end of it. And because you know nothing else, you can't clear them, you can't exonerate them, or you can't involve them. Nope, not, yeah. Not so the world not. will speculate, and we always put evil with evil. We do. We do. Because evil does not come out of nowhere. Well, that's my story today. <laughs> Fucked up story. Thank you for, like, depressing me for the rest of the fucking night. You're welcome. And making me want to, like, throw shit. Like, <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. I'm so angry at this dude. I know you're angry. It's okay. Yeah, it's... It's going to be okay. <laughs> it's rough when you have kids of the same age. It's extra rough. And I, when I read it, yeah, Our a couple years ago. Is what? She was six months younger than her? When or? I read this a couple years ago, our youngest was younger than Kelly. And I just, I mean, oh my God. And our second, old, our second youngest is only like barely a year older than her. I know. So it, it hits close to home when you imagine this. And especially because, I mean, how many of us have let, our kids walk next door to the neighbor's house to go play basketball or to do a ride their bike down the street or yeah. go for a walk. Yeah, and it's like you know, this the, the, the I don't know what you call it these days the jungle gym, the playground, the our playground, house the park, six yeah. houses down the street. You can see her from our front door, and it's like, well, have fun never leaving again <laughs> after reading this case. Well, here's your GPS tag. I know. I'm staying strapped. If you deviate from this location, it's going to notify me and I'm coming in wheels hot, body armor, locked and loaded, firing. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> okay, guys. Well, that's it from us. And um, thanks for listening to this very depressing case, but a case that needs to be heard. Absolutely. And we will see you back here same time next week. We love you guys. Be good to each other. Bye.